It's time to do this. Uh, oh, fucking A. <laughs> Start all over. Yeah. All right. It's time to do this. After a long time planning and preparing, we always reach a point where it's just time to start. Hi, Laura here. Welcome to the first few seconds of the first episode of Tell Me Something True. We call it TMST for short. I'll be the person doing this thing, the host thing, the connector thing, the person in your ears every week thing. We needed to start TMST somewhere, so I called Cheryl Strait. How do you solve a problem like Maria? How do you catch a cloud and pin it down? With apologies to Rogers and Hammerstein, and The Sound of Music, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Writing About Cheryl Strait? I mean, why rehash a bio that's been printed a hundred times? Or list the books that you probably have on your shelf already? She's such a giant presence in our culture and in our lives. And I gotta say, I'm not an impartial observer here. Cheryl's Dear Sugar column has turned my life inside out more than a few times. So when it came to picking a start, Cheryl was right there. We created Tell Me Something True because we wanted to make something for people who want to fall in love with the mystery of life again. We're hungry for connection. Each of us has something to offer, which is why we're carving out this corner of the internet. Cheryl speaks beautifully to this need for connection and why we need to trust ourselves and step up to be who we really are at the center, or what Cheryl calls the core. Are you ready to light this up? Let's go. Cheryl, welcome. Thank you so much, Laura. I'm thrilled to be here. Me too. It's good to see your face. So at some point I was listening to an interview, this must have been years and years ago at this point, and you, someone said to you, the interviewer said, you know, you've become this amazing, powerful woman. And you said, thank you, I have. And I was like, what just happened? I've never heard a woman do that. Yeah, you're used to women apologizing. And it was so, I've told that story in classes and things like that, because it was so satisfying to hear. It wasn't like, what is she doing? I'm embarrassed for her or she should, you know, it was like, thank God, how refreshing it was to not hear an apology. (laughs) No. Or even a small self-deprecation. It's funny. You know? I, yeah, it is funny. I mean, obviously, and I, anyone who reads me or follows me or, you know, listens to anything I say, um, you all know that I have all kinds of struggles and hangups and fears and doubts and all of that stuff. But I also think it's really important to step into our power and to also say what's true mm-hmm. and to not yes. be apologetic. I remember one time many years ago, it was when I was on a book tour for Torch and afterwards it was, I was in this little town in, in Oregon and afterwards during the Q and a, this woman in the audience said, you know, you have really good self esteem. 
And she said it in a way that wasn't a compliment. <laughs> yeah. And I said, thank you. And everyone laughed. And it was like this uncomfortable moment. And I realized, wow, it was like, you know, I was actually being publicly shamed for seeming to not be sorry for who I was or for this mm -hmm. book I'd written or for, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, the fact that you even noticed that I said that tells its own story, right? That like, this is an unusual thing for us to see women say, yeah, yeah, I, I feel powerful and strong and accomplished. Right. When I was thinking about you coming on and just where my journey started with your work, I don't know if I imagine this. I think it's possible, but tell me if I'm wrong that I read Tiny Beautiful Things before Wild. Well, it could be possible because Tiny Beautiful Things was published only four months after Wild was published, which is kind okay. of a strange little combination of events. But right. essentially, I was writing the Dear Sugar column on the rumpus while I was doing the final edits of Wild. Yeah. And then, it, you know, because of the way that publishing works, there was just... It, you know, Wild was completely and utterly done, copy edited everything more than a year before it was published. Right. And so I was just like waiting for it to come out and write in the Dear Sugar column. <laughs> and meanwhile, I, I said to my publisher, because I kept getting these emails from editors saying, I don't know who you are, but I'd love to publish a Dear Sugar book. Oh, my so God. <laughs> I told my publisher, OK, there's this other book that I've written accidentally. And so they were just kind of like, ah, we want to focus on Wild, but OK, we'll put this out and we'll just kind of put it out a few months after Wild comes out. So yeah, okay. I had those two books kind of on top of each other. So some people read Tiny Beautiful Things first and some people read Wild first. Yeah. So the reason I remember this is I knew I must have seen that Wild had come out or something and that's how I found you. But I picked up Tiny Beautiful Things for whatever reason that books land in our laps when they do. And it was 2012. Yes. And the summer of 2012, like maybe late in the summer. And 2012 is seared into my brain because that's the summer that my husband moved out. Mm. And I mean, I was in all kinds of pain. I was, you know, my daughter was three and I had to be a single mom. My drinking was just at its very worst. And I was taking this trip to San Francisco for work and I was working in advertising then, and I had this long flight back. I was really hungover and, of course, just, you know, devastated all the time because of this, of my husband moving out. And there was an essay in the book that was the truth that lives there. Mm, mm -hmm. And it was your response to three women's letters that you sort of collated together. And they were all talking about why they wanted to leave their relationships for different reasons. Mm -hmm. And you essentially said, you know, go, 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 even though he's your best friend and go, even though all these things that, because we have so many competing truths in us, it was the first time it's like, I didn't know how badly I needed to hear what I heard in those words. And I swear I cried the whole way back from California, mm. like the, the sobbing, but like beautiful cry. It was like, finally, finally, I heard what I needed to hear. Wow. In and even though you were left, it was your partner who left you. Was... He moved out, but we... But, right. He, yeah. You both, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was more me. And, you know, I was... I stitched together the pieces of your story about your first marriage in that book, too, mm -hmm. because it was eerily similar. You know, you right. were much younger, of course, but 
you loved him and you needed to go. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that wasn't at all the first time writing had sort of saved me or met me where I was in such a place that it felt divine. But mm. it was a really particular kind of way that you wrote that really changed. I'm trying to like trace it all back, but it really changed so many things for me because I had never read a book like Tiny Beautiful Things. I'd never read the letter format like that. I mean, I'd all, we'd all read columns, but there was something so special about that. And it's, I hadn't gone through all the pain I was about to go through yet. There was so much more to come, Mm -hmm. but something in me changed when I read that book where I thought this pain is going to be useful and maybe this is when you start writing about it. Mm. Wow. I, that never ever doesn't astonish me when people tell me the stories that they have about the way that that Dear Sugar column has influenced them or touched them or reached them. And I just, I'm so, that's, it's my highest achievement professionally, I think. Like that's the whole mission I set out on when I dreamed of being a writer. And it was because I felt like you use that word divine, you know, when Mm -hmm. I have felt my own divinity via the words of somebody else or, or the divinity really, frankly, of all of us that I think, wow, that sentence just blew my mind or changed my perspective or consoled me profoundly or made me see that something I thought was impossible was possible. That's, that's powerful medicine. So thank you, Laura, for, thank you for sharing that with me. It touches me a lot. It means a lot to me. Thank you. So, which is leads me to sort of my first question is when did you realize that your personal specific life might be useful to other people? There was never this time that I thought, you know what, I'm going to take all my pain and this, the sorrow and struggles I've gone through, and I'm going to make it something that helps others. In fact, when Tiny Beautiful Things was published, I remember being just so kind of unnerved that one of the categories that people put it into was self-help. Uh-huh. Because I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> I, I what is I didn't write a self help book, and mm-hmm. and what was funny about that? It was like a literary essay. It was in memoir. I mean, it is a hybrid of a book, and of course, it belongs in self help. I mean, it is an advice column after all, right? And yeah. yet, what I realized is that I have never written anything that wasn't in some ways self help. Well before Wild was published, my first book, Torch was mm-hmm. published in 2006. It's a novel. Mm-hmm. And the number one thing that people say to me about that book is, wow, that helped me so much. It's a book about grief and loss and about betrayal and about how we go on even with our sorrow. And mm-hmm. even though it's fiction, people see themselves in those characters and they feel yeah. consoled by them. They feel helped by them. And of course, the same is true with Wild. When I was writing Wild, right. I wasn't thinking like, this is an inspirational tale. <laughs> I <laughs> no. really wasn't. Here again. Bet, no, I'm sure you weren't. I, I, you know, it's like, I mean, that's what's so funny is I, I, I feel like as a writer, so often people assign a kind of intent that I'm like, no, no, actually, I just felt compelled to tell the story. And so, you know, to answer your question, for me, it's both, you know, I never decided my life would be perhaps, or my writing would perhaps be helpful for people. And yet that decision is, has been, I think, at the heart of every reason I've ever loved a book or every reason I've ever wanted to write. Because I do think 
I know that the mission of literature is to tell us what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. And so as a writer, I joined that circle. I joined that circle of intention saying, I want to show us to ourselves and not just the, the us we already know or the us we'd most like to receive, but all of us, you know, the beautiful, right. the ugly, the glorious, the defeating, the sorrow, the joy, the mm-hmm. failure, the triumph. And right. so that helping others through my words is embedded in the very core of who I am as a writer. I have always felt that memoir is the best self-help for me, even yeah. though, because it's not trying to be. And fiction too. It's like when I teach memoir, I often will also have people read fiction, mm-hmm. you know, especially first person fiction, because it's mm-hmm. like, okay, it doesn't really matter if this person actually lives out there in the world. Like if you feel this character, this fictional character, in your heart as a real human, what's the difference between that and memoir in terms of the way you feel seen or heard or consoled by the book? And so, yeah, I've fiction has saved my life as well, but yeah, memoir is really powerful that way because you do know that there's that person out there. Right. You know, there's some immediacy there because you know. So I read in a recent interview that you said, for whatever reason, I find it far more comfortable to turn away from difficult emotions than I do to turn toward them. And I really get that. But I'm wondering if you have always been that way or like, when did that show up if you even know? Yeah, I think I've always been that way. It's in my nature. I think a couple of things. I think I've always really felt others. And and I was going to say the pain of others, but that's not entirely true. I've also felt the joy of others. I guess that's called empathy. I've always had the feeling that I can feel what others feel. Yeah, I've same. always been incredibly attuned to the emotional realm. Mm-hmm. So you might walk into the room and later, if I had to testify in court, I would not be able to say like what color your shirt was, mm-hmm. but I would be able to say what you said mm-hmm. and more importantly, what you felt, like what I felt you were feeling, what little tiny nuance of a little gesture did you make? I think the kind of clearest experience I had of this several years ago, I was teaching a workshop in Maui and Mm -hmm. the the husband of one of the workshop attendees, we were hanging out at some kind of, you know, dinner that night or, you know, we were just socializing and I met him and we started chatting and he had been out fishing that day. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, you know, actually I love to fish and I spent a lot of my childhood on boats because my dad was a fisherman. And that's all he said that to me. And I looked at him, I said, was your dad an alcoholic? (laughs) And he, that's, he, that's what he did. He said, why did you ask that? Like he was so, and I said, I don't, I don't know. You know, I I just, the the way he looked at me and said, Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time on boats when I was a child. Mm -hmm. And I just had such a strong feeling that Mm -hmm. he was on a boat with men who were drinking Mm -hmm. and he was really taken aback and he said, he was, he was, you know, and it was one of the biggest traumas and wounds of his life. And, right. and I had picked up on it. It was like, that's, and it's not like I'm saying, oh, I'm such a, you know, an emotional genius, but I'm no. saying that is the world that I'm tuned into. And it is for whatever reason, um, it's kind of like some people know, they know a map, you know, they right. can find their way. And some people are always last for whatever reason I can, have always been able to find my way and the emotional realities that are present in a room. Yeah, same. I think that's 
built into being a writer to some degree, but I think that's why, say, when I was on the plane, it, it really all of your writing where it hits in a different way because I believed you. Mm. So can you do that for yourself? Are you pretty self-aware about what's going on with you? I think so. I do think so. I think that it's also true that, of course, when it comes to yourself, you very often, it's like you have to go on a search because, of course, anytime you start to consider yourself in that way, you have your own denials and biases, fears and, you know, all of that stuff. So I do think that I'm somebody who's really open to considering if I'm mistaken. A lot of times what I'll do when I'm writing about myself there's an interrogation process that goes on. I mean, you know this as a writer. I, I think of it as an excavation where you decide, okay, I'm going to write about this. And then you imagine you're going about three inches deep and then mm-hmm. you start writing and then you're like, oh, there's actually something underneath this. And then there's mm-hmm. another thing underneath that. And, you know, that's why the the process of writing, especially about your life is, is so much like therapy because that's what therapy is, right? You're like, yeah, my, my dad was abusive. And then it's like, no, but what's underneath that? And then where, mm-hmm. where does that, what's that connected to? So it's pretty interesting. That doesn't mean that life is easy. (laughs) I mean, no, actually, no, that doesn't equate to life being easy at all. No, but I do think that life is harder if you decide to stay in denial, if you decide not to address the things that are making you unhappy or that are causing turmoil or conflict. Yeah. I think what it keeps coming to mind as you're talking is just the shadow, you know, that Carl Jung called the shadow and that you seem to be pretty comfortable with that side of humanity. I guess so, yeah. You know, I don't know how I got that way, but I think it's true. And I think part of it, too, is I'm also a really practical person. I like to solve problems. I think it's really inefficient to drag the same problems around <laughs> yes. all your life. And so, like, I'm a problem solver. I mean, I'm like, this is not going well. So, and I guess, too, I have faith always that, like, either mm-hmm. writing about something or talking about something, like, we can always find a solution or we can always find a way to feel better about whatever that thing is. So, like, denial doesn't work. And the opposite of denial is saying, like, let's hash this out. Let's let's talk. One of the letters in Tiny Beautiful Things that totally changed me was the obliterated place. Mm. And for people that are listening that haven't read it, a man writes you this letter about his son who was killed and he writes it in a list format. It's 22 points. And you write back in the list of 30. And when I read that, it changed the what I thought was possible with writing. Just even in format, you know, to see something like that. And, and it was so effective. And so you met him exactly where he was, but the part I pulled out my old copy, I have it here. And I went to that and saw the part that I had highlighted. And it's where you say, when you say you experience my writing is sacred, what you are touching is the divine place within me. That is my mother. Sugar is the temple I built in my obliterated place. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that's it. I was kind of moved just remembering that, honestly, that I told him, and I I guess I've told so many people this over the years because that man was obviously suffering from his particular grief, but Mm -hmm. all around the world, there are people who suffer from 
the loss of someone they love dearly, the loss of someone who they think of as essential. And what we want when someone we love dies is we want that person back. And yeah. the one thing that we can absolutely never have is that person back. That person back, at least in the form that they were alive and among us and, and with us, right? And so the only sense I've been able to make of learning how to accept that profound loss and to make it into something other than sorrow is to yeah. make something beautiful of it. And that's the last line of that column, you know, make something of your beloved son and make it beautiful. And that is what I have done in my writing. You know, my mother can never be with me, but I can resurrect her in so many ways through my writing. And the kind of love that she gave me in my life in so many ways contributed to my ability to be the person I am and to write the kind of stuff that I do. And what's cool is, you know, I didn't quite realize that consciously. It wasn't a, here again, you know, I didn't sit down and say, okay, I'm just devastated. My mom died at 45. I have to live all my adult life without her. That makes me sad. I'm going to bring her back to me through my writing. Like, I, of course, didn't think that. But what happened is when I started to write out of my deepest place, I found my mother was at the center and mm -hmm. my love for her was at the center and my grief for her was at the center. And I started to tell the savage truth about that. And every time I did that, from the first essays I wrote called The Love of My Life and Heroine, to my novel Torch, to Wild, to Tiny Beautiful Things, every time I did that, people would come to me and they would speak to me about my mother. Mm -hmm. And what I realized is like, wow, in the only way that I can bring her back, I did. I did. Mm -hmm. That here she is, she has a presence. She has a, my mother has a presence in the lives of people around the world because I wrote about her. That like utterly dazzles me because th that is the thing I did. That is the thing I made of my obliterated place. And yeah. it ended up being a really beautiful thing because it wasn't just about me saying, oh, I want to tell you about my mom, but it was about me helping others in their own loss. Yeah, it's that you told the savage truth about it is I think the difference because I'm what, what I'm trying to get at with this is I talked to people, my big sort of devastation so far was different than yours. But when I started to tell the truth about it, it alchemized it into something and changed the sort of trajectory of it. And I talk to people all the time who want to know how to get not out from under, but I mean, that's what they feel. You know, I want out from under this. I want through this. And as far as I can tell, that's how I know to do it is to, to start to tell the truth about it. Right, right. And not just the truth that you've been told that you're allowed to feel mm. <laughs> or yes. the truth that, you know, it's kind of, you know, the title of that, that letter that you first referred to, the truth that lives there. Yes. Um, you know, that is the savage truth. The there in that title is at your core. And the reason that that column rocked you is not that I told you something that you didn't know. It was that I told you something that you knew and you were afraid to know. Totally. And because you had been told all of your life that you were not allowed to know this. Yes. And I always joke like that column is the column that made me like an absolute home wrecker because so many people <laughs> yeah right so many people left their partners Sorry. right and it's like and it's like no no 
I didn't compel you to leave your partner. What I did is I said, you know, you know what you want and it's okay to know what you want and to act on it. And so, you know, I think that that's what the savage truth is, is it's not like you're such a prophet or a guru and you've said something that no one knows. It's that you have the courage to say what people don't dare to say sometimes. And, and that's what rings our bells is what we recognize. And, yep. and so that's what's going on there, I think, when we talk about the savage truth. Yes, spot on. And I would love to hear you comment on this, but my experience is that people don't tell the truth for all kinds of reasons, but mostly because they think it will further them from love in some way. Of course. But I know the opposite to be true. And that doesn't mean that the truth, telling the truth about your life or what is at the core, because there are also many competing truths. That's also yeah. what's difficult, right? There, and, and that's part of what you talk about in that letter, the truth that lives there is there's all kinds of things that are true. But we know the one at the core. We know the one at the center if we listen long enough, in my experience. So when people say, how do I have the courage to tell the truth? My answer is it actually, it's a risk to not, and it is a risk to do it. Mm -hmm. But in my experience, the risk of not telling the truth is for me, sort of a spiritual death. So what would you say is sort of that risk of not telling the truth? What have you learned? Yeah, I think it's the bedrock of happiness and wholeness mm. is that you really do live out your deepest truth. When I teach writing or just give workshops or talks about the kind of foundational values of how to have a whole courageous, happy life, it always begins with trusting your clarity. And what that's about is exactly what you just said. It is not necessarily having only one truth. It's actually saying, okay, I'm going to sort of push through all the weeds that are growing here. And there are all these mm -hmm. little truths, right? I want this, I want that, I want the other thing. But there always is something underneath that, that is the core truth. And if you can't live out your life from that core truth, not only will you never have a sense of wellness or wholeness, but also you'll never be able to evolve. You'll never, I, you know, be able to walk down that passageway yeah. of your own becoming. Because of course, you know, you don't have one uh, core truth and then you realize it and act on it and then it's That's over. Right. You keep, you keep growing. And of course, if you don't do that, you, you can't grow. And I think it's so important to remember that when we talk about living out that, you know, whether you call it trusting your clarity or living out that deepest truth or telling the savage truth, you know, there is sometimes a price mm -hmm. to pay for that. But the greater price to pay is if you turn away from it because you don't want to pay those smaller prices. Uh, something that, uh, you know, we're talking about relationships, but something that comes to mind for me all the time, whenever I get letters from people in the LGBTQ community who are saying, very often it's from, you know, a, a teenager or a 20-something saying, I'm so afraid to tell my family they'll, they'll leave me or they'll ostracize me or they'll disown me or whatever that is. And that's a seriously yes. high price to pay for telling the truth. And sadly, what one has to do in that situation is say, okay, well, that's a tremendous price. But the other one is even more tremendous, and that is you don't live the life that you're meant to live. And so, you know, I think that that's, 
you know, you have to do that kind of deep contemplative work of finding out what is that core truth? What is the clarity? Do you feel like so many of the problems that you see are a result of people not being able to or being willing to listen to that clarity in themselves? Yeah. That, and that's why I say it's like a foundational value. The thing that I return yeah. to over and over again in my own life and also when trying to give advice to others. I mean, I still write the Dear Sugar column. I now do a monthly newsletter. Right. And I find here I am back in this. I've just started like <laughs> six months ago. And I find here yeah. again, you know, I am saying in, in all these different iterations, it comes down to you have to trust the truth. of that You have to trust what you know to be the truest thing within you. And yeah. there it is over and over again. And of course, the thing is, is, Again, I want to say there are all these reasons that people don't, and they're great reasons. You know, mm -hmm. it's all the cultural messaging. It's the family values that they've been steeped in, the expectations that the culture puts on us about who we should be or how we should look or what we should do or how much money we should make, all that stuff. It's not small stuff. Those weeds are hardy. <laughs> We're going to stick with them, <laughs> yes. you know? And thorny and, and thick. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think, too, that when you're in the thick of it, clarity can feel like the opposite. It can be like, well, wait a minute. Like there are all of these things. How do I know which one is the right thing? And, you know, the reason that that's a really hard question to answer is it's scary to answer it because yes. once you know what the right thing is, you have to act on it. Right. And that's yeah, you try terrifying. not to act on it. <laughs> yeah. Try not to listen to it. Right. Right. I feel very strongly about that too. I didn't really know how to tell the truth or that I didn't think that I could and survive it when I went to get sober because there was just so many things. And so for me, it is also a foundational, that's what sobriety is to me, you know, beyond not drinking or not doing a certain behavior. It is telling the truth to right. myself, to others. Why uh, without... did you think you couldn't survive it? Like what about that particular experience made you feel like, no, 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 no. Well, I had done things like in my marriage, for example, that were they to be revealed, I didn't know if I could tolerate the, I thought it would obliterate me, the, the shame of that, right? Cheating on my husband, lying. And I had lied to everybody in some way. No one really knew what was going on with me. Uh, I mean, shame, shame is the answer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I thought I wouldn't be able to survive that, that I would lose all my attachments. And I know in, at least when it comes to addiction, you know, because also, you know, we have a lot of tolerance for ways that people can be unwell, but addiction is one of those where we still have a lot of judgment towards it, uh, you know, have it on a moral issue and mm -hmm. kind of because of the way it looks and the way it presents is kind of ugly. So I find that is the case with a lot of people. And it's, it's always about shame. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm the executive producer of the podcast. At TMST, we're passionate about having conversations that bring us together and help us stoke our love of life. That's why we created a dedicated site for the show. It's free. It's not a Facebook group. And we aren't mining your data to target you with ads. So check it out. And while you're there, 
please join TMST Plus, our paid membership group. TMST Plus members will play the critical role in keeping this going and ad-free. There are no corporations backing us. There's no advertisers. I mean, it's really up to us to pull together and make it happen. You can make a one-time contribution, or you can join our monthly program, where you can help shape the show, hear the complete unedited interviews, and join regular online experiences with Laura. But know this, you can make a huge difference right now for as little as $10 a month. You can find the link in the show description, and then please head over to tmstpod.com right now and join us. I love how you said you don't get the opportunity to become who you are. I think that's how you phrased it, if you don't tell the truth. And that can sound very kind of this squishy sort of pop culture self-help thing. I don't think it is, but I want you to talk about it because isn't it a selfish sort of privileged thing to become who you are? Like, what does that even mean? I think that this whole notion of sort of examining yourself or trying to improve yourself or trying to be, I guess, more conscious about who you most truly are rather than living out who other people expect you to be or want you to be. The framing of that as selfish or particular to any kind of economic or social class, like I think that that's in so many ways a way of denying that it's important to do emotional work, that that Mm. emotional work is a part of well-being. But I think too, and that's the beautiful thing about, (laughs) I mean, I'm going to say it's the beautiful thing about awful things is they happen to all of us, right? And so we all need to, you know, regardless of whether you're living in poverty or you're a billionaire, you are still going to need to figure out how to love and be loved. You're going to figure out how to forgive and be forgiven. You're going to figure out how to make amends or take account or, you know, all of those things that we have to grapple with. I I know exactly what you're saying. I mean, I certainly think that some self-help, that's probably why I recoiled all those years ago when I saw like, wait a minute, my book's not self-help. Because some self-help can be like, honestly, the most insufferable, privileged, kind of like rich person kind of crap that we've all encountered that is so easy to spoof and so easy to kind of make light of. But yeah, Yeah. I think that's the opposite of the business that I'm in and that you're in. Mm -hmm. It's the opposite of the kind of savage truth telling, the savage holding to account. And, you know, I mean it really, if it sounds woo-woo to say like, you can't carry on down the passageway of your becoming unless you trust your clarity. Um, I mean it actually. You know, you don't get to have the book you wrote, Laura, unless you became sober and reckon with the things that sobriety forced you to reckon with. Right. I don't get to have the marriage I have without first looking really deeply about the ways that I enacted grief 
through my sexuality in my first marriage. You know, that's what I'm talking about when I say that trusting your clarity and telling the savage truth are the things that unlocked for us the ability to move deeper, move further, um, look wider. If anything, I think that it's honestly that kind of process that has most deeply allowed me to to look at things like privilege. You know, I mean, I think that this is about awakening. It's about enlightenment and it's available to everyone. What has been, as you see at the cost of succeeding? For me, that has been absolutely a journey. (laughs) You know, first of all, to learn how to not feel apologetic for my success. And, and, you know, Mm. talk about, you asked me about, am I able to clearly see myself? And of course the answer is yes and no. Uh, When I was in the first years after wild was this big success, I would be, I, I would have said to you that I didn't feel sorry for, my success and I was, you know, adjusting to it beautifully and I was just thrilled and everything. (laughs) And I was thrilled, but I was also like, I felt sort of guilty because Mm -hmm. I know so many other writers who are absolutely wonderful and great and worthy of fame and international acclaim and a wide readership and they didn't get it. And I did, you know, and I felt like somehow bad about that. And It took me a while to really process that, I think, in my mind and to step into this notion of like, that can be true. It's not my fault that we don't love all books in equal measure, right? And to step into just saying, this good thing happened to me and I worked for it and a lot of other people have worked for it too and didn't get it. And that's something that's outside of all of our control, but it's not something I need to apologize for. And so you know, that was the price to pay for successes in so many ways. It does demand the savage truth-telling. It demands a kind of reckoning. And it demands a kind of uh, stepping into the fear or the shame or the vulnerability to see what it is. Yeah. One of the things that I've definitely noticed, (laughs) one of the the prices of my success is a lot of people project, you know, they project onto me or they think that they know what my story is or what my motivation Mm -hmm. is. And then they'll make assumptions about me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so how do I, it's such a complicated question to answer, but I want to, it's, it's important to me that I answer it as honestly as possible. So did I have big dreams for myself and high ambitions? Absolutely. But I always did think like, you know, I want to be a great American Mm -hmm. writer and I am so unashamed it, just, it took me some time to be unashamed to say this, but for whatever reason, ever since I was a little kid, I was like, I want to be a great writer. <laughs> I love it. And so that was my idea. I want to write, you know, I wasn't trying ever to write the second best book mm-hmm. that anyone's ever read, mm-hmm. ever. I was always trying to, I and still to this day, like I always want to do my very best work, you know? On the other hand, the thing that drives me is not like the, the end result of that. Like, am I going to win a prize or am is it going to be a bestseller or is so-and-so going to read it? What drives me is always this very internal, kind of difficult to explain little engine that just says, I have to mm-hmm. tell this story. I, I, this is why I say I always feel like I was called to be a writer. And what happened is I realized that that engine couldn't efficiently run if that high ambition was ever present 
So I had mm-hmm. to release that. There was a certain point along the way when I was writing mm-hmm. Torch, my first book, that I realized, oh my goodness, you know, I'm not trying to write the second best book. I'm trying to write the best book. And guess what? I probably can't do that. I might end up having to just accept the fact that the best I can do is to write a book. Get, get, <laughs> That's get so rid hard of that word best. Yeah. Write a book. Write a book. So I call this surrender. You know, when I teach workshops, that's one of the first things I teach. You have to (laughs) surrender to your own mediocrity is what I say. You think you're going to come to Cheryl Strait and you're going to get this like rah, rah, you can do it. You got this girl, whatever. Now I say, you know what? You're mediocre and uh, surrender to that. And of course you can be excellent in your mediocrity, but what you need to surrender to is I am going to do the best that I can do. I am not going to do the best. I'm going to do the best that I can do. And that to me was really honestly one of my greatest liberations as a human and as a writer. And so that's how I've always written my books. It's the best I can do. And yes, that little high ambitions back there and the dreams and the hopes, but they are not the thing that drives me forward. They can't be, you know, they're like a roadblock, you know, when I get too wrapped up in that. And so, yeah, I'm being really sincere when I say this, that the glorious things that have happened in my career because I did that work, you know, are really lucky strokes of good things Mm -hmm. that I'm so grateful for. And they've been thrilling and rewarding and they've brought me a lot of joy and excitement. But really what I work toward always is that next thing I can write that's the best thing I can write for that moment in my life. That's success. Oh, I love it. And I'm so glad you said that because I'm so glad people get to hear it for one, for whatever realm they're striving to do their work in. Do you listen to Taylor Swift at all? I know you, maybe your daughter is of age. She, so my daughter's 15 now, but I mean, that's how I was introduced to Taylor Swift really is years ago when my kids were really little, they started to fall in love with her. And I think she's wonderful. I love her. I think maybe even more than my daughter does. And I have loved her for a long time. But it just so happens that my daughter also loves her too. And your daughter's older, almost 12, but it's one of the few that we can listen to together and equally adore. But what the reason I was asking is she came out with a record, two records last year, which is like amazing. But the second one that had the song Marjorie on it, the song Marjorie is about her grandmother. Mm. And grandmother was an opera singer. And so, you know, the, the singing and the performance carried through this refrain is repeated of what died didn't stay dead and I still carry you with me and, and all that. You're alive, you're alive in my head. What died didn't stay dead, what died didn't stay dead. You're alive, so alive. But there's this one line, these two lines, that when the first time I heard it, I sat in a parking lot at Whole Foods and just sobbed. I think just for the beauty of how she translated how she felt about her grandmother, but also thinking about mine. And it says, I should have asked you questions. I should have asked you how to be. That's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so my question is, do you feel like you asked your mom enough questions? And do you still have that conversation going? Mm, That's a great question. Thankfully, I did. 
I asked my mom so many questions. Oh. That is <laughs> that is one thing that I was absolutely famous for. I mean, locally <laughs> famous in my family. I was just an interrogator. That's the other piece of my writing, I think, is that, you know, I always had this feeling like I could feel what was true in the room emotionally, but also I was deeply curious about the lives mm-hmm. of others. And so I would ask questions to a degree that even, you know, my mom would be like, when she had friends over, you can only ask them three <laughs> things or something. And I would always ask these like piercing right. questions. Why don't you love your husband? <laughs> yeah. When I was like seven or eight, one of the questions I asked is there was a couple over and I said, why do you love your husband? Why do you love mm. your wife? And they were stumped. Like it was like, I think most people, it's hard for them to articulate, of course, why we love somebody. But, you know, they're not, we don't ask no. people that. But I was curious. I and, so, you know, I grilled my mom when I was a teenager. You know, when did you lose your virginity? And what, you know, ah, da, da, da. my mom would be like, Cheryl, Cheryl, stop. And so, yeah, by the time she got sick, that was one of the things I was so grateful for is I felt like, oh, my gosh, we had left nothing unsaid. Yeah. And I had asked her everything. The the only thing, the sad hitch in that, of course, is that I was only 22. She was 45. And there were so many questions to come. You know, there were so many questions I didn't know I needed the answer to. And so in the years since then, there is a deep sense of loss about not being able to call on my mom in all these different parts of my life. Uh, You know, basically all of my adult life, right? And especially, yeah, just so many things. And especially, you know, I've, I think of her a lot when it comes to mothering mm-hmm. and wishing I could talk to her about me being a mother and her being a mother. And there's so much that she could have helped me through and that she could still be helping yeah. me through. So she's ever present. You know, I think she's ever present in my life in a lot of ways. But, you know, like my kids are now 15 and almost 17. My son's about to turn 17 and my daughter's 15. And, um, you know, this past year, especially with the pandemic, like, you know, the the parenting has been so intensive. It's like they're toddlers again, almost in terms of the complexities of not only the adolescent years, but also just, you know, times the pandemic, which has made things a lot harder. It's been, I would say... Well, I wouldn't say. I know for sure it has been the second hardest year really? of my life. Um, only, only after the death of wow. my mom, um, it has been an incredibly hard year in my life. And um, I sure have thought of my mom a lot, and I wished that I could ask her for some advice. What has contributed to it being one of the harder, you know, the second hardest year of your life, aside from we can all say the pandemic, but what's in there? My kids. That, you know, it's been a difficult year, you know, for my kids. Yeah. And so that's been just really challenging just to have, you know, kids at this age where really their developmental job is to go out there and mix with their peers and that they've been prevented from doing that to a great extent. You know, obviously they go outside and do things, but it's just been a very, very, and we've had only online. So yeah, it's been very hard. It's very cathartic for me to hear you say that because it's an acknowledgement that it was this extra layer of difficulty as a parent that yeah we have no precedent for either, you know. We don't. We don't. And, and you know, also just like that whole, uh, I mean, we've heard a lot about women and 
work and parenting and the parenting, you know, like the, when the kids are always home. I mean, there's just been so many layers of challenge and difficulty and loss that I, I think that we're going to be talking about this and thinking about this mm -hmm. for a long time. You know, the consequences of what so many of us experienced in the pandemic that was either caused by it or exacerbated yes. by it. I think is, there's going to be a kind of personal reckoning for a lot of us, but also maybe a collective one. In your interview with Oprah, I went back and looked at that. She asked you what the hike taught you, the Pacific Crest Trail hike. You said you had to accept the fact of the hour, the mile, the fact of summer, the facts of my life. So at 52, what are you working to accept right now? Well, gosh, it's been really interesting because after Wild was published and Tiny Beautiful Things, I just got so many different opportunities. And one of those things is I became a sort of accidental public speaker, you know, like really gave yeah. a lot of, you know, a lot of talks and traveled and yeah. just lots to do. And I have been working on my next book and I've written a bunch of stuff. You know, I wrote a screenplay over this past year. I've written lots of essays and stories, but mm. I'm working on my next book and it's taking longer and it's been harder. And it's, you know, I, I feel full of shame and anxiety about the fact that I haven't finished it yet. And yeah. I, I realized it's like, you'd think that I would have solved all of my problems when it comes to writing by now, right? You'd think like, okay, you know, I know how to do this. I teach writing, like I've written books, you know, all of that stuff. But no, what I've realized, and here again, this is, goes back to this notion that if we trust ourselves, if we're awake to the deepest, chorus truths in, in us, what, what it leads us to is not like, okay, now I'm done, but actually like the next door, you know, the next door to walk right. through. Then you, know, you walk further down that hallway and there's another door. And what's come to light in this past year that I've suddenly not been talking so much, I've given some Zoom talks, but I haven't mm -hmm. been traveling, that mm -hmm. I've stayed home and I've written and I've been a full-time writer again. And wow. I realize how not only hard that is for me, but how I have some things I need to work on so th that it's not so full of struggle. You yeah. know, the, the thing that has been uncovered for me is that I need to maybe face some of these anxieties and fears and doubts that I have instead of just live with them as they are. Is it these anxieties and fears and is it because you feel like you shouldn't have them that you don't face them type of thing? This goes back to acceptance. So on one hand, one of the solutions for me, and this is something I espouse to others as a teacher or a mentor or a, a figure in the writing world, mm -hmm. is I say the way around mm -hmm that fear and doubt and anxiety about writing for me is to say, I accept you. You are present and I'm going to write in your company. I'm going to write even though I feel this and that mm -hmm. and the other thing. I'm going to push through it and that is how I get the work done. And that is true. That is absolutely true. Yeah. But what has occurred to me is if I want to grow, if I want to be stronger and better and wiser, what about saying, I will still accept you but I would like to make you smaller <laughs> that like maybe, that maybe there's a way of like, yeah. I've given, like, I'm always like, give them, give fear a seat at the table. And maybe like one of the ways that I can evolve is to make the chair for fear and doubt and anxiety, like a tiny little stool instead of like a big recliner. So I'm working to accept that the ways that I have persisted as a writer have been to say like, okay, fear, come on and sit down. 
And what I'm saying is like, okay, where I'm at now is that actually I need to revise the narrative even more. That now even Mm -hmm. that acceptance is, that I've shown acceptance for fear and doubt and anxiety, even that's not enough for me, that I have more work to do in Mm -hmm. this realm. And to learn how to have a different relationship to those things in my writing life because they're making me suffer too much. So to accept that there's more work to do that here I am, you know, most people would imagine that I, I mean, I am an accomplished writer and I need to figure out a way to feel more comfortable in my writing. And, you know, that Mm -hmm. I'm not at the mountaintop yet. You know, I have to keep climbing in order to get to that place, I guess, where I feel that I've evolved. Yeah. That I've done the things that we've been talking about this whole time, frankly. Yeah. It's a great answer and it's heartening to hear because we do have those ideas about where we think people are once they've achieved this or that, or you've never been the you that has written this book. That's right. You, you've never been. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I think too, that like, we also get complacent within ourselves. Like, you know, you, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the things I love so much about people who are clean and sober and in the sobriety community. There's always this really like alive, awake idea that it's always a work in progress, right? That it's like, yeah. you're not like, okay, now I'm done and I'm all set. <laughs> and, you know, I think no. in other ways in our lives, we can kind of be like that. Like, it's like, oh, okay, I figured out how to write, Definitely. you know, give fear a seat at the table and on we go. And it, just for me to, to wake up and say, wait a minute, maybe I really actually do need to, to dig underneath this a bit more because maybe I'll be happier if I do. Yeah. And what you said about it's making me struggle too much. I think that's a good barometer for people. And when you are struggling against something too much, it's the resistance that I have found. It's like this equation, pain times resistance equals suffering. Like pain is okay, (laughs) but all that resistance equals suffering. So this is just the best. And I so appreciate you. And it's wonderful to, I was marveling at the fact that it was 10 years ago that I read Tiny Beautiful Things and what a wild 10 years for me. Yeah. Well, in 20, the summer of 2012, nine years ago, but, but nine years, yeah, right. We're almost there. You know, when I was that girl reading it, I never thought I would, it's not true. I wanted to be a published author. I had this dream, but I was not living anywhere near that. So it's a full circle moment for sure. And look where you are now, Laura. I'm so inspired by you and proud of you. And Mm -hmm. I just, I love who you are in the world. You are such a light to to me and to so many people. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us today. We want every episode of Tell Me Something True to give you something you can use in your life. I think Cheryl delivered and gifted us with loads of perspective that can inspire us today tomorrow, or whenever we want to pick it up and use it. And now I want to share something that is extremely important and relevant to you. Do you notice there aren't any ads on TMST? That's by design. We want to keep this show and our digital spaces ad-free, but that's a goal we can only accomplish if we work together. Yes, please follow, rate, review, and share all the things you hear in a podcast. But even more important than all of that, we would love you to engage in our online community. Head over to tmstpod.com 
to connect with folks around this episode. And while you're there, please become a subscribing member. The TMST subscribing members will play the critical role in keeping this going and ad-free. There are no corporations backing us, no sponsors, so it's really up to us. You can make a one-time contribution or join our monthly program where we have cool opportunities for you to help shape the show, hear the complete unedited interviews, and connect with other TMST folks. I can't stress this enough. You could make a huge difference for as little as $10 a month. Please head over to tmstpod.com right now. Coming up next time, Diego Perez, who you probably know as Young Pueblo. His new book, Clarity and Connection, has not been far from my side since it was released earlier this year. Diego shares some life-giving messages of hope and growth and shows how literally anyone can take simple steps that add up to meaningful, positive change. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Jeff Whittington was a producer for this episode. Michael Elsesser and I dreamed up this show and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time on Tell Me Something True.